Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor David Linden, who is a professor of the Department of Neuroscience at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. His lab has worked for many years on the cellular basis of memory storage, recovery of function after brain injury, and a few other topics. He's the author of four best-selling books on the biology of behavior for the general audience. His most recent book is Unique, The Science of Human Individuality. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me on. Sure, yeah. So the topic of our conversation is your most recent book uh, that just came out. And it's about human individuality. Um, you know, when I think about uh, humans, David, uh, <laughs> you know, I see 8.3 billion people around the world. Uh, we seem to sort of micro-segmented ourselves into a variety of buckets uh, by skin color, by language, by country. We have leaders, leaders of great democracies uh, reminding us uh, we are in, um, in, in different buckets uh, all the time. So what do you mean by human individuality? Well, what I really mean is all the traits, uh, physical, uh, uh, behavioral, emotional, cognitive, that you can describe about a person. And yeah. The way that I began to think about this is, is uh, about five years ago, when I found myself single in midlife, and uh, I did as people do these days, and uh, I went to an online dating website, mm. and uh, I was reading the profiles, trying to find a woman who I might want to have a conversation with, and uh, it worked out very well. I met a woman who uh, became my wife. She's wonderful, so there was a happy ending. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, the nerdy side of me was reading the lists of traits that people have there that they used to describe themselves and wondering how they come about. So, you know, someone might say, well, I'm five foot 11 and I'm bisexual and I have a Boston accent and I like uh, bitter beer, but I don't like uh, white chocolate. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I tend to be a risk taker. And so, I started thinking, well, gosh, how do these traits that make her an individual uh, hmm. come about? So that's how it all got started. Okay, okay. And so um, 
so so we'll get into the book in detail um and so you know uh, when i think about a sort of human individuality yeah uh, let me know if this works for you i think about you know sort of hardware operating system and software uh, and so uh we are all you know sort of born with some some hardware there are some genetic components there we have we come up uh, come with come with some instincts uh perhaps sort of an operating system uh that runs uh, runs from you know right from the beginning and then we start to put applications uh on top of it and uh and ultimately that computer is really a combination of all of these things right that is how the computer behaves is that a good analogy for humans no not at all okay. uh it isn't because uh uh by your analogy the hardware would be changed as a result of experience too in other words your genome has 19000 genes in it approximately but any given cell in your body at any time maybe it's expressing 12000 of those genes and the genes are being turned on on and off as a result of your experience. Yeah. Some of them are being turned off all the time. For example, you don't want the cells in your stomach lining to be growing hair and you mm-hmm. don't want the the cells uh uh in your hair follicles to be secreting stomach acid. So so those genes are turned off all the time, but many other genes are turned on and off uh as a result of your experience in the world and by experience i mean both social experience and also uh whether it's day or night and the foods you eat and the bacteria that uh colonize your gut so so i think uh, i i think the computer analogy really fundamentally breaks down mm. so that is what you mean by epigenetics well so epigenetics means the way in which uh gene expression is regulated in which genes are turned on and off in various cells at various times and there are some ways to turn genes off that are rather long term like if you want to shut off the hair growing gene in the cells uh in the lining of your stomach you might add chemically add methyl groups to the dna to do that and then there are other ways of regulating gene expression that are more dynamic for example every day uh over the course of 24 hours you have g- some genes that are highly expressed at night and some other ones that are highly expressed in- during the day and they go up and down up and down up and down every day of your life so there are different mechanisms to regulate gene expression when it's changing constantly and that could be that could be happening with environment and your experience right well right i i think many many of your listeners may have heard a term which i really dislike which is nature versus nurture and in in my view this term has done more damage than any other expression in the history of biology <laughs> uh i don't have a problem with nature as a sort of metaphorical poetic expression to mean heredity to mean the uh, genetic influence but the idea that everything that isn't heredity is nurture is just not true nurture means how your parents and your community raised you or how they failed to or how they abused you and mm-hmm. i think uh what's important to realize is that the non uh the non hereditary things that influence your individuality are much broader than that it's experience not not just social experience and not just the sort of experience that can be written into memory 
but everything from the diseases your mother was fighting off while she was carrying you in utero to the average temperature in your first year of life to the bacteria that colonize your gut. Uh, experience broadly considered should replace nurture in the nature versus nurture uh, expression. Mm, okay, okay. So in, in the first chapter of the book, you have a very interesting experiment. Um, so, so dogs came from wolves, domestication of wolves. And this is a much more recent experiment in Soviet Union, uh, attempting to domesticate foxes. Yes, um, uh, that's right. This is, this is a very interesting experiment because it's extraordinarily hard to do. It takes, it takes many tens of years. And so what they did is, is that the, you know, foxes are, 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 are grown uh, uh, on farms in the Soviet Union to harvest their fur uh, for garments. And uh, so the infrastructure already exists, uh, but uh, some scientists there decided, well, we want to see, can we, can we make dog-like foxes? Can we, uh, through uh, a small number of generations, by picking those foxes that are the tamest and breeding them together, uh, can we, can we uh, uh, produce a, a, a dog-like fox? And so, you know, what they... What they, what they did is they first looked at the foxes that were, that were already there in the fur farm, and they tried to identify the tamest ones. And, you know, they would do things like put their gloved hand in the cage and see who didn't bite or who didn't cower. And they would take those foxes and breed them together. And then they'd take the offspring of them and see who are the tamest ones and breed them together. And, and after about four or five generations, they already started to see behavioral changes. Uh, in the foxes. And within 30 generations, they had uh, foxes that were as loyalist and, and as tame as, uh, as any dog. Interestingly, while the only criterion they were used for this fox breeding was tameness, other traits uh, came along as well. Uh, curvy <laughs> tails, uh, the ability to uh, patches of, uh, of different colored fur on the face. And uh, what some people think is what you are actually selecting for when you're selecting for tameness is uh, the arresting of development of an early stage. So you get a sort of playful young fox uh, hmm. in, its, in, its, uh, uh, in its characteristics. Uh, interestingly, people have known uh, for a long time that there's a domestication syndrome. So turning straight tails curly and getting uh, patches of fur on the face, that happens not just in this fox experiment, but in all kinds of, uh, of domesticated mammals. Hmm. Is, is it purely a selection uh, effect, uh, David, or... Is it something something more systematic going on? So just five generations uh, already getting to the to the end outcome that you're looking. Well, for. five generations didn't get you entirely to the end outcome. Five generations okay. got you to seeing something in the behavior that you could measure. It took thirty generations or more to really. I mean, and one I don't know. I would I wouldn't even want to say it's the end outcome because who knows? Maybe they're still changing. <laughs> this experiment is yeah. still going on. As a matter of fact, if you want to buy one of these domesticated foxes, you can send nine thousand dollars to some people in Russia, <laughs> and they'll bring it over for you. Uh, you can right. have one as a pet, and a few people uh, in North America do. 
Uh, mm. But uh, but no, it took longer. It took, but still, in the in the scale of evolutionary time, thirty generations is not very many. Hmm. Uh, so, so what I was getting to was, uh, so if there's some random changes uh, in the in the population, and then you're basically selecting what is what is good for you, uh, are we seeing just a selection effect, or is is there more sort of reinforcing effect, um, you know, by by spending more time with people and things like that? Well, um, the what they the, these researchers were very careful to to not interact with the foxes beyond what they had to do to select them after that it's not like they took the you know the foxes for that they were going to breed the next generation and cuddled them and you know had them have lots of human contact so presumably it's just a selection effect but i think what you bring up is a really interesting point in other words in order for selection to work there have to have been some slightly tame foxes in the population to breed for the very first time. In other words, if all the foxes they had available to them were completely untame, there would be no way to get right. started. And that's what happened with zebras, because people tried to domesticate mm. zebras. Um, <laughs> so, for example, uh, in certain parts of Africa, there's sleeping sickness spread by tsetse flies. And uh, horses can get the sickness. So you can't use horses very well in these parts of Africa, but zebras are immune. So people said, well, a zebra's kind of like a horse. Let's uh, domesticate zebras and then we'll solve the problem. But the problem is there were no slightly tame zebras to start with to breed together. So the project failed. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so the sort of the initial conditions are quite quite important. Like you say, you have to get a few tameable <laughs> things for the experiment to, to, to go on. Otherwise, uh, right. otherwise you cannot do That's right. There has to yeah. be variation or there's nothing to select from, right? If you have a right. population right. that are all identical, you're stuck. There's nothing you can change. Yeah. So, so you have a number of very interesting studies in the book uh, about uh, twins uh, and, and human uh, twins. Uh, in an effort to identify, you know, sort of the heritability part of human traits uh, and and really experience part of uh, human traits, you want to you want to talk uh, talk about a few of those cases? Well, sure. So um, we uh, can assign heritability estimates to certain traits. There are a few traits that are a hundred percent heritable, like whether you have wet or dry earwax. And that's produced by variation in a single gene. Uh, there are a few traits that are not heritable at all, like speech accent. But most traits are at least either uh, physical traits like height or behavioral traits like risk-taking and novelty-seeking uh, have some intermediate level of heritability. And the way we make these estimates, so uh, I'll give you an example. The, the, the estimate yeah. for the heritability of height among people in the United States is about 85%. It's one of the most heritable traits that we know. And uh, the way that we get that number is by measuring height, both in fraternal twins and also in uh, monozygous twins, so-called identical twins, which in a moment I'll explain aren't really identical. 
sort of a misnomer. And then by looking uh, at twins that were either raised together or raised apart in different uh, in different households. And then there's a standard equation called Fisher's equation that you can plug these numbers into and it will give you an, uh, an estimate for heritability. But the important thing about estimates of heritability is that they're only valid for the population in which they're measured. So I said that height, for example, was 85% heritable in people in the United States. And it's about the same in other affluent countries where people get enough to eat and they're not battling infectious diseases. But if you go to rural Bolivia, for example, where there's a lot of poverty, uh, there height is only about 50% heritable. Why? Because people can't live up to their genetic potential for height because of malnutrition, um, because of battling infectious diseases, sometimes because of environmental hazards in the home or in the workplace. And, uh, and so a heritability estimate comes from twin studies, but it's only valuable for the uh, population which it's measured. And then the other thing that's, that's really important to us about twins is that if you look at monozygous twins, the ones that people call identical in common speech, if you look at them even as newborn babies, they're not really identical, right? They don't look exactly the same. They don't have the same temperament. If you talk to parents of monozygous twins, they'll tell you. Um, and <laughs> so they have, they're different, even though they have the exact same DNA, and even though they developed in utero lying right next to each other. So how is that? How does that come about? Well, it comes about through the pseudo-random nature of uh, development. So your DNA isn't a precise instruction for every cell in your body, where it goes, where it migrates, and what it connects to. Uh, rather, it's a set of rather general instructions. You know, so, so for example, a population of neurons in the brain uh, might get the general instruction, hey, grow towards the top of the head for a couple of millimeters and then cross over the midline to the other side of the brain and keep growing up to the top of the head. And the rest of you cells grow laterally out towards the ear. And in one identical mm. twin, maybe 40% of the cells will cross the midline and another one, 60% will, because the instruction is not absolute. The genome is not a blueprint, even though there's a book with that mm. as, its, as its title. It's not correct. Um, uh, it's not a blueprint. It's not a schematic diagram. It's a set of general instructions. And so if we are to go back and modify our expression, nature versus nurture, what we would really come up with is something that's more cumbersome to say, but which is much more accurate, which is it's individuality is produced by heredity interacting with experience. Experience, as we said, mm -hmm. being very broadly considered, and filtered through the pseudo-random nature of development. It's not as fun to say as nature versus nurture, but it's more accurate. Right. So even if the initial um, the instructions in the DNA are the same, there is sort of a, a probabilistic or stochastic outcome for the individual, yes. right? Uh, all the complex wiring that needs to be done, uh, it could also be quantum mechanical. There, there's some spe speculation that the brain is actually quantum mechanical, which makes it uh, even more complex. I, uh, that, that, that's so, true. Yeah. Uh, but 
my feeling is that you probably don't need to resort to a quantum mechanical explanation to understand uh, uh, individuality and precise cellular location uh, and, uh, and, and wiring. You know, it, it's fun. There, there are some animals that make this really easy to study. So there's an animal called the nine-banded armadillo. And the nine-banded armadillo is always born as uh, monozygous quadruplets four identical babies. And if you take the armadillos and you measure their bodies in different ways, you put them in scanners, you dissect them if you're so inclined, uh, you know, what you find is that at birth, one of them might have a, a liver that's 30% bigger than the other. And the other one, you know, might uh, have, uh, have uh, uh, you know, more, more neurons on this side of the brain than that side of the brain. So, so these, these kinds of developmental pseudo-random uh, uh, variations are important uh, in, in as part of what determines our individuality. Right, right. Um, so, so we talked a bit about the nature versus nurture problem. Those terms are not, not the right terms, as you say. Uh, but on the experience side, you have an example here um, uh, about the, the Japanese army uh, invading the, the British Burma and um, how some people sweat sweat more than others. You, you want to quickly talk about uh, uh, the Sure. So this there? is a great example of how non-social experience can change your individual traits. So in the beginning of World War II, when the Japanese uh, invaded South Asia, you know, they ran over the British Army and they invaded Malaya and Thailand and, and Burma and they were, you know, they were on the doorstep of India by 1942, and uh, and the the one problem that the Japanese Army had is that a, a number of their soldiers were succumbing to heat stroke, rendering them temporarily unable to fight. And when the doctors in the Japanese Army looked, what they found was that. The soldiers that were more likely to have heat stroke were more likely to be from the colder northern parts of Japan, like the island of Hokkaido, whereas the soldiers who came from the southernmost major island of Japan, Kyushu, uh, they were much more likely to be okay. So the classic genetic explanation for this that we might imagine is that, oh, okay. Oh, and uh, I'm sorry, I skipped something. So the other thing that they that they did is they did skin biopsies because they thought that that you know we, we know that the ability to sweat when it's hot helps cool down your core and prevents heat stroke so they thought well maybe people who can tolerate the heat better have more sweat glands over their body and that turns out not to be the case that's not true but if they look carefully they see they have more sweat glands that receive nerve fibers from the heat regulating part of the brain and that's important because those are the ones that help keep your body cool on a hot day that can command uh can command sweating and they found that there were truly more of them in uh, the uh, Kyushu soldiers, the southern soldiers, than in the Hokkaido northern soldiers. And so the classic genetic explanation would be, oh, well, over many years in a cold place, it's been selected for you, have, for you to have fewer innervated sweat glands. And in a warm place, you'd have more. Uh, but when they looked into this carefully, they found that that wasn't true at all. In other words, if you had soldiers that came from long-standing northern families but their families moved to the south right before the soldier was born that soldier would carry the southern 
sweat gland phenotype with it. In other words, large, you know, uh, which is good for, for heat tolerance and, and vice versa. If you had a longstanding Southern family that moved to the North and then their child was born, that child would carry the Northern phenotype. And so what it means is that this isn't a genetically encoded trait at all. It's actually determined by the ambient temperature in the first year of postnatal life. So just the first year, yeah. it's remarkable um, that that really differentiates it. Uh, you have a broader um, picture here. Um, it says some diseases are significantly more prevalent in people born in particular seasons. Um, and the variety of diseases that you um, you indicate here, like ADHD, hypertension, asthma, and so on, and and so so these are statistically um, uh, significant. That if you're born in let's say uh, let's say fall, your chance of getting viral infections are. Um... Well, I'm, so I don't have this memorized. I'm actually going to the figure in, in the book. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, and, and, and of course, yeah. you know, the fall means the seasonal fall. So it's going to be a different time of year, whether you're in the northern or the southern uh, hemisphere. So, you know, uh, atherosclerosis is more likely in spring births, as is atrial fibrillation. Uh, acute bronchiolitis more likely with fall births as are viral infections. So this is work that was done by Nicholas Tantanetti's lab uh, at Columbia University uh, Medical Center. And what's nice about it is that they just went in and looked at enormous numbers of medical records with about, you know, a thousand different diseases as categories. And they had no preconceived ideas about the relationship between time of year of your birth and, and disease. You know, they just, they just went in randomly and they said, like, what is it going to turn out to be? And uh, they did this for, for specifically for people in New York City, uh, but it has since been, been replicated in a number of other places uh, in the world. And the interesting thing is that it's only a handful of the diseases that have these seasonal, uh, the, they have... Uh, so of 1,688 conditions, only 55 were significantly influenced by birth month. So that's a small fraction, but of that small fraction, uh, it's important. And, you know, we don't always know the reason, right? You can make up stories about environmental allergens, for example, uh, or temperature. But in many cases, uh, we don't honestly know. We only know the epidemiological correlation. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I grew up in India and uh, astrology, you know, <laughs> there, is a, there is a big connection between your uh, birth date and what's going to happen to you uh, in many religions um, and cultures there. Uh, I was wondering also, David, uh, do we have any data on the COVID mortality uh, against um, but, but, uh, no, uh, I mean, well, no, no, I mean, there is some data for uh, COVID, the incidence of COVID uh, uh, in time of year that's just starting to come out now, you know, with an increased incidence in, uh, in, in winter, you know, as, as you know, as similar to what happens with influenza. I think to me, the more interesting question comes from a, uh, has to do with pregnancy. And this comes, this is inspired by a observation of women who were pregnant during the 1918, 1919 pandemic flu, 
women who are pregnant over that winter, that when we follow their children, they have a fourfold higher incidence of schizophrenia. So the incidence of schizophrenia goes from about 1% up to about 4%. And that's a very large effect. Even though the expression autism really wasn't prevalent at that time, we now know that the same is true for autism. Uh, and and these are these are mothers. So the who mothers were infected. were infected, but the increased incidence is yeah. in the in the child they were carrying, right? And we don't know entirely how this happens, but experiments in mice suggest that what happens is that as the woman, as the mother is is fighting off the viral infection. As part of the of fighting that off, she secretes a immune signaling molecule called interleukin 17A. And interleukin 17A can cross the placenta, enter the brain of the developing fetus. And if the, the fetal brain development is at exactly the right moment, it can influence the development of uh, the neocortex of the brain in a way that seems to uh, increase the probability of autism and, uh, and schizophrenia. Now, what we don't know and how this relates back to your question about COVID, we don't know if this is going to happen uh, with other infections as well. In other words, it seems to happen with bacterial infections too. If a mother is fighting off a bad bacterial infection during pregnancy, there's also the same problem. So, you know, the moms who are pregnant and who get infected with COVID, will their children over the years have a higher incidence of schizophrenia or autism? We don't know yet. And will take many years uh, to find out, but it might be, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, this is a big issue, right? So when we think about optimum policy interventions, that the disease burden that we are using uh, to, to, uh, to come up with an optimum intervention is all the short-term effects. Uh, and so if there are, in fact, long-term effects we have to think about, uh, then, you know, the policies related to uh, herd immunity and stuff like that. Really oh, I completely blocked, agree right? with you 100%. I mean, when I hear uh, people in some political circles say, well, oh, yeah, you get COVID and then you get over with it. And, you know, unless you're a really old person, you're probably going to be fine. And then everything's fine. That's just so not true. We now know that there's a significant population of people that that for which for which COVID infection produces a long-lasting complicated syndrome with all kinds of unpleasant and poorly understood uh, effects on multiple organ systems from the heart to the brain to the liver to the immune system. And so, you know, the idea that it's just the acute effects and if you don't die, you're all going to be fine and go back to normal, that's not true. And then, of course, when you add in a risk like the risk to developing fetuses, it only makes that strategy even worse. Uh, so we got to take COVID seriously. It's not just an acute disease that you get over. Right, right. We will take a quick break, David. When we come back, uh, we'll talk about the rest, of the rest of the book. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So, 
So we are back. Um, so David, uh, I want to go to the, the next chapter in the book uh, entitled, I Forgot to Remember to Forget You. <laughs> uh, this is all about memory. The brain is a funny thing. Uh, it seems to fill in a um, lot of the missing information. It makes you believe things. Uh, you have a case here um, of that Oklahoma bombing, right? Uh, Timothy McVeigh and, and uh, how ultimately uh, they were caught? Well, yes. Yeah, so, so in the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, 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 Timothy uh, McVeigh was, uh, was, the, was the person who, uh, who, uh, who drove the bomb up in the truck and left it to, uh, to kill uh, over 100 people and many children uh, in Oklahoma City. Yeah. And, uh, and he was caught... Uh, 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 rather quickly because his getaway car had no license plate and the police pulled, uh, uh, pulled him over. Uh, but uh, 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 it, it, it turns out that he had, uh, he had rented his U-Haul truck from uh, a, a nearby truck rental place. And when they went to uh, interview the people in the truck rental place, one of them, uh, the mechanic, one of three people who had witnessed uh, Timothy McVeigh do the rental, say, oh, you know, there was another guy with Timothy McVeigh hmm. at the time. And they said, oh, okay, well, we'll get a sketch artist here and you can do a drawing <laughs> of him. And so they did a sketch artist. And, and you know, your listeners who were, were around at that time will remember this face. It was a rather heavy, heavy-jawed, muscular looking scowly face and mm. and he was called John Doe number 2 mm. and this was the cause of the biggest manhunt in FBI history everybody <laughs> thousands of agents were mobilized hunting for John Doe number 2 all kinds of tips poured in people say oh they saw him here they saw him there they saw him in this bar <laughs> and you know driving down the road they saw him with with Timothy McVeigh running away from the car in Oklahoma City um but no one could ever find uh, uh, John Doe number two. Mm. And uh, the FBI investigated further, and they found out that the day beforehand, there was a guy who came in to rent a truck, and he looked a bit like Timothy McVeigh. Mm. And the guy he was with was a dead ringer for the sketch of John Doe number two. <laughs> okay. And so the mechanic uh, uh, had done something that's very easy for us to do. I don't, I don't want to, to, to you know, complain about him because this is something that anyone could happen to. He had taken the memory of one day of yeah. this guy, it wasn't Timothy McVeigh with John Doe, with a John Doe number two looking guy. Mm -hmm. And he had mixed that together with the memory of Timothy McVeigh coming in by himself in order to create a blended memory. Hmm. And that's what gave rise to the entire mythical John Doe number two <laughs> wasted manhunt. And this is something that happens to us all the time. We're extraordinarily bad right. at eyewitness, uh, at eyewitness testimony. You know, thousands of people go to jail all the time based on faulty eyewitness testimony and not for people who, you know, are trying to be mean and, and uh, people who completely believe that this is the way uh, they remember things happening. Mm. Our, our memories are not built to be perfectly accurate. They're, they're built to support decisions in a way that has been sculpted by human evolution.
And the bugs, so to speak, in memory that make it less accurate are, are actually features because they actually support decision-making in most situations, although not all situations. <laughs> yeah, so there could be a power consumption uh, thing there too. So the brain is you know, sort of trying to, uh, let me ask you, brain is sort of trying to get things done uh, by filling in uh, missing information and you know it might be uh, it might be optimizing to get the task done, and in the process <laughs> we might uh, we might get a lot of make believe stuff. Well, so I mean, some people say, well, there's a limited capacity for memory storage, so yeah. it makes sense to render memories generic. And the example that I always like to use is, if you've only been to the beach once in your life, you're probably going to remember a lot of details about it. Mm -hmm. But if you've been to the beach a hundred times, you're probably not going to remember what happened on time number 57 with much detail, unless something very dramatic happened. Right. Uh, uh, on that particular visit. Rather, you will have folded it into a more generic memory of, of visits to the beach. But the truth is, a generic memory of visits to the beach is actually more useful to you in hmm. terms of most decisions you will make in your life about the beach right. than a hundred perfect fidelity uh, filmed with a movie camera kinds of, uh, uh, kinds of memories. And, and in truth, Memory is only useful when it's not a static thing like a photograph or something written on a file card, but mm. when it can be constantly updated with, by its relationship to everything that happens after that and every time you recall it. So mm. the fact that memory is dynamic and that it is rendered changeable when you recall it degrades the fidelity of memory, but in most cases actually increases the usefulness of memory. Yeah, so isn't there a isn't there some sort of a disease, David, that uh, that makes you um, really memorize all the details in you know in great detail? So, uh, so yeah. there are a few uh, cases in uh, uh, in the literature uh, uh, of people who have uh, so-called eidetic memories. Hmm. Uh, that is to say, memories where they remember every every detail of their own experience and uh you know we don't always have a way of fact checking that but it seems to be pretty true it's very very rare and there's a famous uh example uh uh there, there was a book by the soviet neuropsychologist luria that described one of these uh, cases but i think the thing you know you might think oh well that person's going to be a genius well no actually it turns <laughs> out that having a, a perfect memory for everything that ever happened to you is not that useful actually right. that you're you know it's 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 like you're trying to find facts you're in this giant library with too many volumes and you're and you're <laughs> trying to search around so you know the people with yeah. eidetic memories you know uh, that are generalized oftentimes have a problem. Uh, they, they don't actually do very well uh, making their way in the world. Sometimes people have eidetic memories for certain things, like there are a number of, uh, of people who can, uh, you know, upon one hearing, remember every piece of music that they've ever right. heard. Well, you could imagine that that could actually be useful sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so you have a taxonomy here of long-term memory, and you make a, a distinction between explicit memory, uh, memories of events, facts, and concepts, and implicit memory, you say, is acquired and used without conscious attention. 
uh, those are things like skills and habits, associative learning, uh, sort of procedural memory. Um, and so, uh, so from a mechanistic perspective, do these things happen very differently in the brain? Well, they, they, they seem to involve different parts of the brain. So for example, there are places in the brain where if they're damaged, you uh, you really impact uh, uh, memories for facts and events. So uh, many people have heard about the famous neurological case called HM, uh, which was someone who had surgery to 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 the temporal lobes to control intractable epilepsy, and a side effect of this was that they couldn't store new memory for facts and events uh, from the time of the surgery. Onward. They also had a small retrograde amnesia going back a ways for facts and events. But uh, HM could still learn, for example, to, uh, uh, to uh, improve at a sport like ping pong or tennis. Uh, could still learn to uh, write by looking in a mirror, which is a very hard thing to do. Uh, and so in that sense, we know that the damage to the brain, to the temporal lobes that HM sustained seems to spare at least some forms of non-declarative memory. And uh, we know that, uh, that there are damages to other parts of the brain that seem to impact non-declarative memory, but not declarative memory. It's not as if there's a perfect map and there's lots of overlap and interaction between the two and we don't entirely understand it. But there, it, it, and there is at least some distinction at the level of brain regions uh, between these two general uh, memory types. Hmm. Um, in in the chapter um, about uh, sexual self, um, you talk about um, uh, perhaps it's a misconception that uh, sexual preference uh, has no hereditary component to it. Well, so I, I think there's one thing that's really important to to make a distinction. The chapter sexual self is actually not about sexual orientation. It's yeah. it's actually about. Uh, it's about uh, your identification, who you feel yourself to be, oh, right? Okay. And these things are entirely separate, right? Who you feel yourself to be and who you are attracted to are, are separate issues with separate biology, separate genetics. If uh, we are to talk about sexual orientation, uh, what we see in, uh, in, uh, in twin studies is that uh, there is a there is a a, a partial uh, 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 hereditary component. So, for uh, for males, sexual orientation is about forty percent heritable, and for females, and when I say females, I mean cisgendered females and cisgendered males, uh, uh, it is about only twenty percent uh, heritable. So that, that means that there's a whole, I mean, these 20%, 40% are important, but they're far from the whole story. And so then the question becomes, well, what's the rest? And I think most people would guess, well, oh, it had to do with how you're raised. This is the surprising thing. It doesn't appear to be at all, right? There's no aspect of child rearing that seems to have any influence on your sexual orientation whatsoever. I mean, there are cultural yeah. ideas. You might be raised in a home that disapproves of it, so you may you know, not want to express it early in life. You might try to repress it. But in terms of what you actually feel inside, doesn't seem to matter 
what how your parents raise you. I think the important thing to realize is that there are biological factors that can impact a trait like sexual orientation that are not heritable. In other words, they're not what you what you uh, inherit from your mother and your father. But for it's a random random occurrence. Well, not entirely random occurrence. So, yeah. for example, um, uh, if you have old, if you're a, a a man who has older brothers, then you have a slightly higher chance of being attracted to men uh, when you mm. grow up. And uh, it's a small effect, but it's a statistically reliable effect that's found all over the world. Likewise, we know that uh, that women who uh, in utero were exposed to uh, unusual levels of androgens, that is masculinizing hormones, are more likely to be attracted to women when they grow up. So there are biological factors involved that are not uh, that are not heritable. But the truth is, there's still a lot of mystery remaining. It's not like we have a complete uh, explanation for uh, what accounts for variation in sexual orientation. Yeah. So another complex interaction: genetic, biological, experience, environment. Right. The, so, so we cannot really backtrack by just looking at the output. <laughs> well, right. Uh, and, yeah. and I think another thing that's important is that this is actually kind of different in men and than women. And, and so if you talk to most men, they'll say, yeah, you know, as soon as I was aware of having sexual or romantic feelings, they were this way. I was gay. I was straight. I was bi. And then it didn't change for the rest of my life. And and 99% of men will tell you that story. And if you ask women, on the other hand, it's way more complicated. In other words, there's many women who will be the same thing. Oh, I always knew I was gay. I always knew I was straight. I always knew I was bi. But they're actually a very large, uh, significant fraction of women who actually have a more fluid kind of sexual orientation. And it's not necessarily that the sexual orientation changes, but something more complex than that. So for example, you might have a woman who's been straight and, and, and attracted to men her whole life who says, you know, I'm not attracted to women, but I fell in love with this one particular woman. Right. Or likewise, you might have some woman who's always been attracted to women. She says, well, no, I'm not interested in guys generally, but I fell in love with this one particular guy. And there's a terrific book called Female Sexual Fluidity, uh, published by Harvard University Press, that, that goes through this. But I think it's a really important and interesting thing. And that is the whole concept of sexual orientation is a little different in cisgendered women than it is in cisgendered men. Um, so there's some commonality, but but ultimately, uh, we are back to this idea that every individual is different, right? You don't really have predictability. Well, you know, we're we're, we're I mean, at the genetic level, we're mostly the same, but you know, yeah. they're they're you know, you, all you have to do is go on the dating website and see how different people are. Right. You know, <laughs> somebody likes this, somebody likes that. Somebody looks this way. Somebody looks that way. Right. And, you know, a yeah. lot of these things are, 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 are as a result of social experience and a result of cultural ideas. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of it is, uh, is genetic uh, uh, as well. Uh, I think 
what's what's interesting to me is that the notion that there is something in biology that pushes for individuality. And uh, hmm. I'm thinking a lot about some fascinating work by an investigator at Harvard named Ben de Bivort. And Ben de Bivort studies genetically identical lines of flies. And he finds that they don't all have the same behavior, even though they're genetically identical. For example, some tend to turn left more and some tend to turn right more when they're placed in a little tea maze. And if you take the ones that tend to turn left more and you breed them together, you don't get ones that, that predominate in turning left. You get half left and half right again, right? So it's <laughs> as if there is something that is promoting behavioral individuality, uh, probably through the pseudorandom process of development. And probably, I'm speculating here, but the most, I think, evolutionary biologists would speculate and say, well, the reason for this is that if you have a population of critters and they all behave the exact same way, then they can all be wiped out when something catastrophic happens. Like if you got a bunch of insects and they all like to hide under leaves and none of them like to go out in the sun, then you know when the air environment under the leaf is going to kill you, then there's nobody left. But if there are a few weirdos who like to hang out on the sun, then maybe that population will survive. That's the kind of explanation, the class of explanation, that's put forward for uh, uh, why there seems to be a push for individuality in nature. It's a, it's a fascinating book, David. We got through only a quarter of it. <laughs> uh, but uh, in conclusion, um, so the book is unique, The Science of Human Individuality. You want to uh, sort of summarize um, the, the book and what, what a reader might take away from well, it? Well, you know, I think, I think people have heard a good summary about my reformulation of nature versus nurture. But rather than that, I'd like to make a slightly different point. And that is... You can hear that a trait is heritable, uh, and that, uh, and you can hear that a trait is heritable in two different populations, and it might lead you to believe that the difference between the populations is therefore heritable. Let me give an example. Uh, body mass index, how fat you are, is a fairly heritable trait, about 70% heritable in people in the United States. Now, on average, yeah. people in France have smaller body mass indices than people in America. Is that because of heritable genetic differences between French people and people in the USA? No, it isn't. It's because people in the USA eat more calorically dense foods and exercise less. <laughs> so even though that trait is heritable, the difference between the groups is not heritable. And that's the thing that I would like to leave your listeners with. Yeah, I, yeah quick question on that, David. So, so if, if we assume that eating habits and exercise habits are correlated with BMI, um, so, so if your dad and granddad had those, uh, let's say, let's call them bad habits, uh, then you are at risk, uh, regardless of your efforts. Well, uh, yeah, well, you yeah. only have some ability to change this. In other words, BMI is 70% of variation in BMI is, is heritable. So, you know, right. if, 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 if you are battling with losing weight, you have an ability to affect that up to a certain point. Right. But at a population <laughs> level, you know, you, you know, you're we're, we're, you're kind of stuck with your uh, with your genetics uh, 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 to some degree. So, you know, I think I think what people should take from this is compassion. Right. 
In other words, a lot right. of people look at people who are overweight and they say, well, that person has no willpower, right? If they just mm. tried harder, they could lose more weight. And so there's no reason for them to be fat. And I think if we look at the heritability of BMI, uh, what is revealed is that, you know, that's, that's really not the right attitude to have. It's not biologically supportable. Yeah, I mean, it's hugely important. So 70% is a big number. And as you know, um, BMI is very closely related to uh, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, expensive disease states. And so the interventions that, that uh, we are suggesting in the medical arena, is it really considering this fact? Well, I mean, I think the interventions can work up to a point. In other words, most people, you know, depends how, uh, what, what weight they're starting at, but a lot of people who are overweight and looking to weight to lose weight, they can lose 10% of their body mass and keep it off. But they're probably not going to be able to keep off more than that. In other words, they might be able to lose 20% of their body mass, but their chance of being able to sustain that weight loss is, is very, very low because the brain is, is like a thermostat. You know, it's a homeostatic mechanism and it will do everything to turn down your metabolism and make you super hungry to make you try to, mm. to, to, to hit that, that weight set point again. So, you know, I don't want to be utterly pessimistic and say that nobody can ever lose weight and keep, the, keep it off. But, you know, one in, in, for most people, the ability to do that is limited to a certain degree of weight loss. Uh, you know, that on average for most people looking to lose weight is about 10%. Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating book. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks so much, David, for studying. Well, time. thank you. It was lots of fun. And, uh, good luck with it. Yeah. <laughs> thanks so Bye-bye. much. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.